You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello. Welcome to Two Facts Matter. I'm Joseph D'Agostino, and my father, Robert, has asked me to substitute for him uh, this week. So here I am. I'm a law professor as well. And I thought I'd talk about what everyone else is talking about and what everyone else really just wants to talk about, which is, of course, the coronavirus, right? People uh, have been talking about little else the last uh, few weeks, and when I have discussions with my students that aren't just based on a text that is sort of you know in front of us, uh, the discussion almost invariably goes back to the virus in one way or the other. I do try to talk to them about other current events. It's not as if the legal world or the world in general has come to a halt, uh, although some parts of it have, but it's not as if the whole world has come to a halt uh, because of the virus. But it is what's dominating uh, people's minds. And I think that now what's dominating people's minds um, increasingly is uh, looking forward to the end of shutdowns, uh, lockdowns, house arrest orders, um, the you cannot do business orders, you cannot go to the beach, uh, or even necessarily leave your house except for certain specified reasons. So I will mostly talk about these sorts of things. And I'll start with two things that may not have gotten as much attention um, as some other things um, because uh, they're a little bit not necessarily esoteric, but a little bit away from what the, the mainstream narrative has been and uh, even what the conservative narrative, narrative has been or hasn't gotten as much attention as they, they might have. Um, the first thing I want to point out is something about statistics, right? So there have been a lot of questioning of various statistics and kinds of statistics that, well, are surrounding the data collection as well as the data analysis with the virus. For example, possible inflation of uh, the number of deaths to the virus by counting everyone with pre-existing conditions who might have been dying from those conditions as also, uh, as instead, rather, dying from the coronavirus and coding it that way for various reasons. Now, other people are saying, well, maybe actually the death count is too low and that some people who've died from the virus are not being counted, right? So there's a lot of disputes over that. But the first thing I want to talk about is understanding how accurate tests are because we're getting a lot of numbers over how many cases of the virus are out there, uh, the testing uh, of people for the virus, the testing of people for antibodies, which would show that they had been exposed to the virus in the past and are now potentially immune, at least for some time. Immunity can last for a few years and go away. Um, maybe sometimes it can last for a, for a lifetime. This virus is so new that we don't really know how long the immunity uh, would last. Maybe there is no immunity, uh, although it would be extremely rare to have at least not some period of immunity after being infected and fighting off a virus. So we're having a lot of discussion of these tests uh, for the virus, for antibodies, um, as well as, of course, we have medical tests and other kinds of tests all the time, such as in forensic science. Um, we will have uh, fingerprint 
matching. We have DNA tests, of course. We have hair analysis tests, tire tread matching. But the fact is very few people know how to interpret these tests properly. And very few people understand the accuracy rates of these tests because the accuracy rates given in the media, the top-line accuracy rates, are not telling us the real accuracy rates, right? The real accuracy rates are very different from what they are saying they are when it comes to the real world and how things really work. So this can apply to any kind of test, any kind of medical test, any kind of forensic test, um, like uh, hair analysis, hair matching, fabric matching, tire tread matching, DNA matching, although DNA tests are generally the most reliable that we do have. Um, as well as political polls, there's relevance there, and so on and so forth. How accurate are these things? So I've been reading about, in particular most recently, the antibody tests. Right? They want to, uh, so they say they want to do a lot of antibody testing to see, well, how many people may have already been exposed to the virus, because we don't know. They may have been circulating in this country for months longer than um, we first started talking about it. And, uh, uh, really in February, uh, may have spread much further and wider than many people believe, so the antibody test can hopefully tell us. And then if you do come back positive for the antibodies, it suggests that you're probably immune at least for a few years to the coronavirus and just as a person, just don't have to worry about it as an individual uh, getting it uh, again anytime soon, maybe never. The problem is, just like with testing people who have the virus, testing people for the antibodies or any medical or other tests, the tests simply aren't that reliable. So what do I mean? So I'm reading about tests that can be 90% accurate, 95% accurate, 99% accurate. Well, that sounds good, right? That sounds fairly good. Okay, here's the problem. Let's say that there's a test for these antibodies that is 95% accurate you're tested, it comes back positive. What are the chances you actually have the virus? Well, you need to know more information. For one thing, you need to know what happens the other 5% of the time. 95% accurate, 5% not accurate, okay? What happens the other 5% of the time? Let's say that 5% of the time, the test comes back with a false positive, okay? So this test is accurate 95% of the time, shows you positive for the antibodies, or not positive correctly 95% of the time. The other 5% of the time, you get a false positive, right? This is a test that skews in favor of uh, positives, which many tests do. Many tests skew in favor of negatives, and then some are just, you know, 50-50. We'll say this one, 95% accurate, 5% false positive. So now you're tested, comes back positive. What's the chance you have it? Again, you don't have enough information. This is what a lot of people don't recognize. You need to know the prevalence. That is, you need to know what proportion of the population being tested uh, has the disease or has the antibodies or whatever it is that you're looking for, right? What is the positive rate in general, right? So you need to know the, the prevalence. So let's say one out of 100 people have the antibodies, right? So for one thing, we don't necessarily even know this number, which means we cannot tell the real accuracy of the test. But let's say we do know this number, say that 1% of people have it in the general population being tested, okay? So 95% accurate, 5% false positive, 1% uh, 
of people have it. You're tested. What's the chance, and it comes back positive, what's the chance that you actually do have it? Most people will say, well, it's 95%, right? Because it's a 95% uh, accurate test. And that is not true. Uh, the chances are actually um, going to be much lower than that. Much, much lower than that. Think about how this works. Let's say 100 people are tested, and it's a good random sample. So what should happen is, more often than not anyway, uh, one person comes back positive. That's the one person who actually has the antibodies, right? So you get that correct result. But then you get five false positives. So you get six positives, but only one of those people actually has the antibodies. So when you ask the question, what is the chance of anyone who tests positive for the antibodies actually having the antibodies, the chance is only one in six. The chance is actually only one in six. They actually have less than a 20% chance of having the antibodies. So these other people, most of the people who test positive may go around thinking that they're immune, don't have to worry about it, and it's not true because most of the people who will test positive will actually not have the antibodies and they'll get a false sense of security. And moreover, scientists get bad data because they don't realize that the 95% accurate test is not 95% accurate when it really comes down to asking the very important question, how do you evaluate the accuracy of the actual end result, okay? So I'll walk through that again. You test 100 people with a 95% accurate test, 5% false positives, uh, with uh, 1% of the people actually have it, we just have to know that independently somehow, then you get six positives back because one is the person who, is the one person who actually has the antibodies and the other five are the false positives. So the chance of any particular person who tests positive having it, actually having those antibodies and being presumably immune, is only one in six, so less than 20%. Um, but we don't know which one of the six, right? Because the test we use is not accurate enough, right? Uh, it, you know, you have to get far more than 95%. Um, accuracy to get really that end result accuracy. So you, um, it really depends on how prevalent the disease is. The more prevalent the disease is, the more accurate the test is, right? Because instead of looking for a needle in the haystack, one person out of 100, if you're looking for 50 people out of 100, much easier to see much easier to find accurately. Unfortunately, it seems, you know, with most diseases, of course, that you're actually going to bother to test for it. It's, they're pretty rare. If they were very common, uh, it's much easier to deal with. Uh, either that or if it's fatal, everyone's going to be, you know, half the people will be dead anyway, right? So with most diseases, of course, it is uh, a low prevalence rate. And so the problem is you need a super, super accurate test. Even with a test that's 99% accurate, with a 1% false positive rate, you're not going to get that accurate. You think 99%, well, that's wonderful. Well, let's say one 100 people have it, the test is 99% accurate, the other 1% of the time it gives a false positive. You test 100 people. First, you get the one person um, who actually has it, they test positive, but then you're going to get another person who falsely tests positive. 
So the chance that any given person who tests positive actually has the protective antibodies is just one in two, right? It's just 50%. They just have a 50% chance, even though the test is headlined as 99% accurate. And then the accuracy goes down the rare, you know, the, the lower the prevalence. Say it's a one in a thousand, right? One in a thousand people have it. Uh, you test, right? With a 99% accurate test, 1% false positive. Uh, you get that one person, right, who's, uh, who's correct, who actually has it. But then what do you get? You get 10 false positives, right? So the chance of the person testing positive actually having the protective antibodies is only one in 11 or less than 10%. That's with a 99% accuracy test Joseph. if the prevalence is low. Is it time to take a break, David? That it is. Okay. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right. Welcome back to Do Facts Matter. I'm Joseph D'Agostino. I'm Robert's son, and I'm just filling in for him today. And I was talking about how these medical tests, and indeed all kinds of tests, are not nearly as accurate uh, as the headline number soon. They can say 95% accuracy rate. They can say 99% accuracy rate. The problem is when you're looking for something that's uh, relatively rare, one in 100 people, one in 1,000, maybe even just five in 100, um, the value of the test and actually giving you the right answer can be low. So if you didn't know this before and you've been Reading all the statistics in the newspapers about the, you know, people who have the virus, people might have antibodies, or you've had medical tests done where they told you that the test was 95% accurate or 99% accurate. Um, now you know that it's not necessarily very accurate at all. It can be extremely inaccurate. It can be a less than a 10% chance that you're getting the right answer. And this in the law not only is uh, relevant, of course, for medical malpractice and other such lawsuits, it can be relevant for um, criminal prosecutions, for example, matching people, matching hair samples to suspects, matching uh, fingerprints, matching um, tire treads to, to vehicles, and, and many, many other tests in many other areas of life. Uh, DNA testing is actually not nearly as accurate as people think, but it is actually fairly accurate, maybe wrong one in 400 times for matching samples to suspects, right? People think it's oh, it's only wrong one in a million or two million times. It's actually not true. It's actually about one in 400 times, which is still pretty good 
uh, accuracy rate to, to only have one in 400 failure uh, failure times. Paternity tests are actually very accurate, much more accurate than other DNA matching tests. So this is one reason why you want to have a skeptical attitude towards many things, many kinds of statistics, including any kind of coronavirus case numbers, antibody tests, prevalence rates, because we really don't know what the prevalence rate is yet, so we're still just guessing with these tests, and so on. So I should also point out that um, if you didn't know this and didn't understand this, you're in good company because 75% of Harvard-attending physicians don't know how to calculate the real accuracy rate of the tests that they order themselves. So in the 70s, they did a survey of Harvard-attending physicians where they asked them uh, sort of a simple question, I think it was 95% accuracy rate, the whole thing, what's the chance if, if your patient tests positive for the disease, uh, do they actually have it? 75% of the Harvard-attending physicians gave the wrong answer. Then they repeated this survey a few years ago, and again, 75% of Harvard-attending physicians gave the wrong answer, all right? Harvard Medical School is supposedly the best in the country. So three-quarters of Harvard-attending physicians don't understand the basic statistics behind the very medical tests that they are ordering on their patients and how to interpret the results. You shouldn't feel too bad if you don't either, but you should also really wonder what your family doctor knows and understands, what the specialist at the local hospital knows and understands about these tests when three-quarters of Harvard-attending physicians don't know. So now you know, if you've been paying attention, more than they do about how to interpret the accuracy of medical tests. Now, it's not as bad as it sounds uh, because doctors and others typically don't order tests unless they have a reason to. In other words, it's not just one out of 100 people in the population have it, right, so let's just go out and test everyone and see what we get. They typically only test people who are showing symptoms of the disease in the first place. So there's actually already independent evidence that they have the disease, and then the test helps confirm that. And so the test, which may not be nearly as accurate as, as, as it might seem, is combined with other evidence to come, come up with a better result, even if it's an intuitive one based on symptoms. So if you um, are showing symptoms of um, some kind of uh, virus of some type, Epstein-Barr, who knows, the flu, uh, you go, the doctor evaluates you, Usually the doctor comes to a diagnosis he thinks is fairly good just based on your symptoms and medical history, asking you questions and so on. Then the test confirms what he already thought. It's just an additional piece of evidence. So when it comes to actual practice of medicine, it's not as bad. Uh, it's not as inaccurate or as awful as it sounds because there are other reasons. Right? There are other ways to make these things more accurate. They can run the test multiple times on you. You know, they run the test three times and it comes back positive each time. That's much better, um, much better evidence that you actually have the disease or have the antibodies, whatever they're looking for. Of course, it's time-consuming and expensive to do that, but they will very often do that for really serious diseases, right, uh, and when there's lots of time to test. What often happens is they will run a test that's so, so accurate um, but tends to be very consistent on a false positive uh, and then you get, get the positive, then they like, order a much more sensitive and much more expensive test to confirm the first test 
you know, that go from a test that maybe is 99% accurate, not so great, as we've learned, to a test that's 99.99% accurate, but it's expensive. But is that what's going on with the coronavirus? And the answer is no, um, almost certainly not. They don't have enough tests to be running multiple tests on people. Uh, so they don't have any more sensitive tests. We don't really know really how good the accuracy rate for these tests are anyway because the disease is so new. So when they say 95%, 90%, 99%, you know, that might just really be a guess. They just don't know. They don't have the resources for multiple testing. They don't have alternative, more sensitive tests. Even the symptom analysis, which is would provide more guidance, can be questionable because the coronavirus mimics uh, the flu, right? I mean, in fact, flu virus, cold viruses are coronaviruses, or at least some of them are. So um, we have problems there. And now that they're going to do or that they're doing testing of just general populations, people are not showing symptoms, you're not going to have that independent verification, that independent check on the results generated by a doctor evaluating symptoms or family medical history or anything like that. They just want to do random testing of lots of people, the vast majority of whom will not be showing any symptoms, and all they'll have to go on is the test, which could easily be accurate less than 10% of the time or 20% of the time or something like that in the real world, depending on the prevalence rate which also we don't really know what it is. So we don't even know how accurate these tests are in the real world because we need to know the prevalence rate first. So uh, be very skeptical of these statistics and the reporting on the statistics. I assure you that most of the journalists um, who are filtering this information for you have no understanding whatsoever of the real accuracy rates or the, even a basic understanding of statistics um, Witness their reporting on political polls. They obviously don't have a clue. Uh, most of them, well, you know, some do. So, first thing is, just as Benjamin Disraeli, Prime Minister of Britain, said, uh, their lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? Uh, this is just another example. Whether people are trying to be deliberately deceptive with them or not is not the point. The point is, there are limitations here. There are limitations on tests that have been used for decades. Uh, with their accuracy, and there's certainly so many unknowns surrounding uh, a new disease with new tests developed in the last few weeks or, or months surrounding a disease whose prevalence rate is unknown. This prevalence rate may vary greatly from one region to another, not just one country to another. could easily uh, uh, differ very greatly within the same county. A part of the county is urban, another part of the county is rural. Um, you know, you say, well, they're close together. They're close together, but they're, uh, but the kind of area that they are, the kind of areas that they are are very different and need to be treated differently when it comes to any infectious disease that is spread human to human. Um, so that skepticism, I think, is good. And let me mention some of the other reasons to cast doubt on some of these statistics and death numbers, et cetera, that we're getting case numbers, right? And it's not that we need to ignore them or that we need to pretend the coronavirus doesn't exist or, or anything like that. My point is merely to prompt people to think, be a little, little, little bit skeptical, especially as the manipulation of numbers seems to be increasing the last week or two rather than decreasing. 
um, as uh, perhaps part of a campaign to uh, convince people to stick with the uh, house arrest orders and other shutdowns uh, in this country as opposed to going back to normal life and going back to work and reviving small businesses and social life, uh, et cetera, again. Uh, the incentive to, to exaggerate, to fearmonger, right, which is always there with the government, right? The more, the greater the danger out there there is, the more people, the government, uh, politicians, bureaucrats can claim that they need more control, they need more money, people should do what they say, uh, and, and so on and so forth. It inflates their own importance. The media, of course, love it because they're part of the governmental system, basically, the mainstream media. They're all part of the same club. In addition, sensationalism gets viewers, gets readers. Right? That's what they want. Uh, an article that says things you know are fine, don't worry about it too much, is not going to get the same attention and readership as an article that said that basically has the subtext. Uh, read this so you know what to do, otherwise you'll die. We'll all die, right? Uh, so it's just the way the incentives are. That's just the way the world works. So um, we've seen, uh, for example, recently, just the past few days, New York City greatly add to its numbers of deaths from the coronavirus, uh, backdating them uh, weeks, saying that they uh, weren't included uh, the first round, they should be included now. And so what looked like a positive trend in New York City may not look so positive anymore, thus justifying extension of shutdowns, more money, etc. I don't know how accurate this is uh, or how inaccurate this is, but I think anyone should be suspicious when numbers get added and are backdated um, uh, uh, more deaths are, are coded. Remember, most of the people who die from the coronavirus are elderly. A very large proportion have predisposing conditions, heart problems, lung problems, diabetes, hy uh, hypertension. Obesity is a major uh, risk factor here, particularly with older, in older people. And uh, the idea that you can necessarily tell the difference between someone dying from the coronavirus and someone dying with the coronavirus, incidentally, I don't think we really have enough information for doctors to do that, but we do know that doctors and others have an incentive to code everything that's plausibly um, uh, ascribable to the coronavirus as a coronavirus because it gets their hospital more resources, gets their hospital or other clinic more attention, and the government has promised to cover the cost of the coronavirus, right? So thinking from a financial perspective, you would much rather be dying from the coronavirus than of heart disease or of the flu or of pneumonia caused by something other than the virus, so on and so forth. It'd just be a financial or be suffering from that, not necessarily dying from it, but suffering from that, even dying from it because then you don't leave your family stuck with a bill for $30,000 for your treatment as you're in the ICU in the hospital on a ventilator. And uh, the doctors and the, and the institutions uh, have the same financial incentives here to code everything they can as coronavirus. I'm not saying that someone comes in with a hangnail uh, or uh, or something or an ingrown toenail and they code it as coronavirus. Right? I'm saying anything they plausibly can. Well, look, this person is showing flu-like symptoms. Let's say it's the coronavirus, right? Because you know they don't know one way or the other. They, they're not they're not sure. They make their best guess, but the incentive to, 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 is to guess coronavirus. But, financial incentive, the publicity incentive, your own self-importance, right, incentive, uh, for whether it's politicians, government bureaucrats, doctors, nurses, etc. Let's say it's coronavirus. And um, many listeners probably already know that, that um, a lot of the time people are, are 
uh, said to be dying from the coronavirus and that that death is put down as coronavirus without any test being run to say that it was the coronavirus, right? They don't have enough tests. Many of these thousands of deaths that have been ascribed to the virus, the patient was never tested. Uh, no one knows for sure. And this is true in Italy as well, right? I've watched this fellow. I practice my Italian. I watch his videos online. He has a lot of free videos online. Um, his grandmother's brother uh, and uh, her uh, and his uh, wife died in the past couple of months, which is, of course, uh, very much a shame. Was it due to the coronavirus? He said, well, we don't know. We think so. But they were never tested. We just don't, you know, and so on and so forth. We just don't know. Right. Okay, but Joseph. It is kind of a big coincidence. They both died, you know, in the past couple of months during the pandemic. So maybe they died from the, the coronavirus, but they were already very old. His grandmother is eighty-seven, right? Okay, um, so Joseph, you ready? And his wife were uh, somewhat around there. So we have um, other reasons to be, you know, suspicious of the numbers, question the numbers, not in any kind of nasty way or anything, but in a very rational, skeptical, and sci- from a very rational. Uh, perspective, scientific way to um, be skeptical of these numbers. Okay, Joe. Another thing. Joseph. Is it time, David? It is time. All right, we'll take another break and be back in a few minutes. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio the America's Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome back to Do Facts Matter, which is normally hosted by Robert D'Agostino. I am his son, Joseph, just filling in uh, for him today. And I've been talking about some of the things about uh, the coronavirus, the statistics, and other things surrounding it, and uh, reasons for skepticism, not for rejecting uh, everything uh, at uh face value or, or uh, you know, immediately, but just sort of looking behind them and thinking about both basic statistics, which tells us some things about accuracy rates, but also incentives, right, including financial incentives, including the incentives for people to make themselves seem important or arrogate power or more money uh, for themselves, right? Here is another reason for skepticism or a series of reasons which is the shutdown orders, house arrest orders, I like to call them, 
very inconsistent and very puzzling. So first of all, no matter what anyone tells you, there's really no proof that shutdown, lockdown orders actually did much of anything to slow the spread of the virus. In fact, I, I incline to the opinion, I can't prove it, I incline to the opinion that they simply came too late. They simply came uh, too far after the virus had already spread uh, for these lockdown orders to really have much effect. It was simply too late. It had spread too far. And really, the effect of the lockdown orders was to coop families and roommates, etc., up together uh, in close quarters, which promotes the spread of viruses. Uh, being outdoors is far better. Uh, at least uh, some experts that I've read say that you're 20 times more likely to get a virus indoors and outdoors. My guess is a lot higher than that. Uh, uh, it's actually a much higher um, chance, right? So we really don't know how much of an effect, if any positive effect, uh, the, the lockdowns did. Some experts are saying that in Italy, the lockdowns spread the virus uh, much more than uh, retarded the spread of the virus. It's one reason why it was so bad there is people being uh, so strictly, much more than in this country, being much more strictly cooped up there. Also, it's much more likely in Italy for uh, older people to be living with their families, uh, less likely than to be in nursing homes, meaning uh, they're all cooped up all day with the younger members of their family who had been until recently out and about working and so on, and then catch the virus. In addition, many of the nurses in the nursing homes there, and old folks' homes there, uh, were from Eastern Europe. Uh, so it's foreign labor being used, and when the quarantines hit, they uh, went back to Eastern Europe, either because they were required to or went back to take care of family members uh, or because they couldn't afford uh, to keep living in Italy to pay their rent. They went back and lived, uh, went back home uh, to to uh, live at home and save on rent because they weren't uh, being able to work anymore or didn't think, uh, think they were afraid they might lose their jobs or something. And then, of course, the older people in the homes didn't have the nurses to take care of them uh, and then were more likely to die from whatever reason. So there are many reasons to believe, and those are just some of them, that the lockdowns have either had no effect or very little effect or actually had a counterproductive effect. Right? Now, we are, of course, sure of the effect it's had on the economy and the unemployment rate and on small business, uh, which has been, of course, extremely negative. But another reason I think that is not getting enough attention as to the, my suspicion about the shutdowns and how serious the government was about them and what the real reason the government and government you know, governors around the country have behind them is the very strange inconsistencies and in what is allowed and what is not allowed. Let's take New York City. The New York City area is really the only part of, the, of this country that's been hard hit by the virus. By hard hit, I mean that the health system is really strained by it. Uh, all across the country, you can read news stories, many places of hospitals going bankrupt medical practices going bankrupt, uh, hospitals laying off workers, uh, laying off nurses, um, medical practices laying off people because their regular patients didn't come, uh, elective surgeries and so on didn't come because they either didn't want to or because the uh, government uh, forbid it. And then they were expecting coronavirus patients, but very few came because outside of the New York City area, we really don't have any big hotspots. Um, and so whether it's Atlanta uh, here in uh, Georgia, right, where uh, nurses are being having their hours cut at uh, big hospitals, some of them at least, uh, or places closing. The Mayo Clinic, the mo one of the most prestigious uh, chains of uh, research and treatment centers in this country, 
they had a billion dollar uh, net profit last year, um, or net uh, plus in their in their budget. Now they say this year they're expecting a three billion dollar deficit, so a four billion dollar swing in one year. They just don't have patients, including coronavirus patients. So they're planning major cuts um, and layoffs, etc., so they can get that three billion dollars uh, down to a smaller loss. So the inconsistency, though, New York City, big hot spot, uh, the, by far the biggest in this country. Maybe some of these restrictions made sense, but you know what they didn't do? They didn't shut down the subway. So I saw all these pictures and news stories about you know, the empty streets in uh, Manhattan and uh, the closed stores, et cetera, et cetera, and then pictures of the subway, crowded, full of people. Now, what happens in the subway? One thing is underground, right? So talk about being indoors. Then you're put into a, a subway car. The doors close, windows close. Talk about being in an enclosed space, packed together, just packed with other people from all over the city. An excellent vector for spreading a contagious virus, right? And they didn't shut it down. How serious are we supposed to take these shutdown orders when New York City didn't shut down its subway? All this concern about preventing the spread of the virus, and they didn't shut down the subway. And New York City has by far the densest subway uh, system uh, in the country, by far. This might be, the failure to shut down the subway might be the cause of New York City area's problem or, or most of its problem uh, because they didn't shut down the subway. Of course, you can say, well, how else are people going to get around? Uh, cabs cost a fortune. People don't have cars, so on and so forth. And uh, certainly that's, that's a valid point. The, the, but the question is they were willing to destroy so much of the economy and so many small businesses and so on over the virus to, to s- slow its spread, but not this where the, the, maybe the one thing in the entire country, if you're going to pick one thing in the entire country to shut down, forget about your local little restaurant, forget about the public parks, forget about this, that, you know, the schools, you know, almost no one under 19 in the entire world has died from this virus, okay? It's almost zero. The people, number of people have died from this virus worldwide who are under 19. Uh, not the schools. Australia didn't shut its schools. Australia has had a t- grand total of 65 people die from this virus throughout the entire um, uh, pandemic so far. But one thing that the thing that you would most pick, first and foremost, after you know, when it was very obvious early on that New York City was going to be a hotspot, would be the New York City subway system. They didn't do it. Okay, at the same time, they've been arresting or fighting people who go out and surf by themselves in the ocean. Can you be any better at social distancing than that? Surfing out in the ocean by yourself? I mean, maybe if you went on your own little island or something or way out to sea on a boat, right? Other than that, that's about as social distancing as it gets. Plus, you're outside in the fresh air and the sunshine. Very good for health overall but excellent at avoiding viruses. Sunshine is a disinfectant. The wind blows the virus away. This is why getting contracting the virus while outdoors is extremely, any virus while outdoors is very rare compared to contracting it while indoors where the air doesn't circulate as much, where there is no sunshine. And, of course, people tend to be uh, much closer together. People running on the beach getting sighted. You know, people, people going out, families who live together going out and picnicking in remote areas getting sighted, right? 
in Britain, they've even sent police out on helicopters to remote areas to, to the land and then walk out and give a, 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 a fine, a, cite, a citation to a family picnicking miles away from any other living human being, right? Um, talk about an absurd use of resources, right? So why? Why are they, why are they allowing uh, the subway? Why are they, why are they allowing uh, liquor stores? Uh, to be open, uh, gun stores, as much as I'd like them to be open, you know, you have to ask yourself, why are these things being allowed and these other things that are much less dangerous not being allowed? Why it's kind of harassment of, of the citizenry, right? Why can people go to liquor stores, grocery stores, gun stores, go through drive throughs at um, the restaurants, but they can't go to drive-in Easter services, you know, or church services, Right. Uh, why are those people being targeted? Why are people being arrested for protesting the shutdowns as happened in North Carolina, for example? It seems like the Constitution is optional as soon as the president or governors say it is. Because of what? The fact is, as epidemics go, this is a very, very modest one. The coronavirus is not and has never been a very great threat to this country. It's now projected to kill 69,000 people this season. Well, the flu during the 2017 season killed 80,000 people. Now, of course, you know, the proponents of the lockdown say, well, the only reason why it's going to kill fewer people is because we have shutdowns. And it's very questionable, right? It's very questionable. But the fact is uh, the shutdowns probably came too late. But in any case, they only work for a while anyway. And the fact is we already know the virus has spread far and wide. And notice this. For a very long time, they said the whole point to the lockdowns was to flatten the curve. They said it's too late to stop the spread of the virus, which is true. It's not, it's not possible to stop the spread of the virus. It's spread far too far for that. Everyone who's going to get it is going to get it eventually. There's no stopping it. Unless you're a hermit lives in the middle of nowhere, you're going to be exposed eventually. You can't be stopped. So what they said, as they claim was, we're going to flatten the curve. Yes, everyone's going to get it eventually. Who's going to get it? can't stop it, but what we can do is slow the spread to prevent the overwhelming of healthcare systems, which will save lives. We'll, we'll have the hospital bed, et cetera, by spreading out the infections. Notice now that they're switching to the idea of somehow eliminating the virus, right? Which means they can perpetuate lockdowns and other kind of controls for months, if not years, because they're trying to exterminate the virus. Notice the switch from that. So to justify as many areas, it's perfectly obvious there's not going to be a big outbreak. It's, it's many areas are getting better. Maybe New York City still has a big problem. I live in Chatham County right now, Georgia. This is where Savannah is located. The city of Savannah, the entire entirety is located uh, within the Chatham County. Definitely by far the most populated, uh, densely populated area uh, around here. We've had, as of yesterday, five deaths from the virus. Five deaths total. That's not an epidemic, that's a car accident. And obviously, we can all feel sorry for those people who died and their family members, etc. But it's just as a public health threat, it's a very low one, fortunately. And we should recognize that the shutdowns around here are simply not needed, and they probably never were. But they're shifting to eliminating it. Well, that's not possible. If it burns out on its own, that will have nothing to do with whether we have shutdowns, because it will just infect the people who are susceptible uh, they will get over it and recover. The vast majority will. A few will die. A small proportion will die. Um, and then it will just burn itself out. Shutdowns, lockdowns cannot 
do anything about that except maybe take it longer to burn out. It will burn out faster if we don't have the shutdowns. The shutdowns cannot possibly prevent it or make it burn out when it wasn't otherwise going to. It's far too late for that. The only thing shutdowns and lockdowns and house arrest can do is spread the infections out to prevent the overwhelming of healthcare systems. But it's become obvious that outside the New York City area, no healthcare system in this country is in danger of being overwhelmed. We have so many excess resources because areas across this country prepared. If there was an outbreak, a big, really big outbreak that, that started to overwhelm the system in, say, Detroit, which some people say might happen, we've got so many extra ventilators, so many extra doctors and nurses, we can ship them there. We don't need to have shutdowns anywhere. I don't think we need them in New York City either, but the argument is for New York City area, maybe. The rest of the country, no. Even Governor Cuomo of New York State is shipping ventilators out of state at this point, publicly, publicly saying so because they just don't need them in New York City anymore. So it does not make sense, and the justification they're now using to continue the lockdowns simply does not make any sense. They're switching away from flattening the curve to eliminating the virus from the world, but it has spread too far. It will either burn out on its own or not. may, may live forever among the population like the flu, and we'll just have to live with it forever. Um, and the lockdowns can do nothing about it except slow. But we don't need the slowing anywhere in this country outside of New York City. So watch that. Watch the switch. Watch the rhetorical switch to the justification of continuing the lockdowns. And actually, they're tightening the lockdowns in many areas. They continue to impose new restrictions as the threat lessens. They continue to impose new restrictions that weren't imposed at the beginning. If they're going to impose restrictions, they should oppose them, impose them all as early as possible. Everyone agrees the earlier you do a shutdown, the more effective it is. No one disagrees about that. Lots of experts disagree with Fauci and the, everything else and with the lockdowns. The media doesn't talk about it, but there are many prominent uh, epidemiologists and virologists who, from the very beginning, have said lockdown's not a good idea, so on and so forth. Right? They're just not getting attention. There are at least three at Stanford, for example. There's a whole team in Oxford. There's a whole bunch of other people. Okay, other Joseph. Prominent institutions. So... Um, where are they coming up with the justification for imposing um, more and more restrictions as they have been doing in places in the past week, including in New York State? You think they would have imposed all the restrictions they were going to weeks ago? Joseph, and they're still let's imposing and tightening new ones. And of course, some states are beginning to open up to some extent. Uh, you know, some states are, you know, uh, are are moving in their direction. Fortunately, I hope we are going to be doing that here soon in Georgia, especially outside of the Atlanta area, which is really the only big urban area in the state of Georgia that even has a has ever had a potential problem with this. Okay, Joseph. So what we're going to see is maybe, I don't know, but more and more of a rhetorical shift towards somehow stamping the virus out of existence in the wild, so to speak, uh, here and around the world, which will then justify the indefinite perpetuation of social controls, uh, destruction of small business, while Congress and, and President Trump bail out big business and the big banks, right, and the private equity firms that are going to have the ability to uh, buy up all kinds of distressed assets all over the country very soon. The small business dies, many small businesses die, many medium, medium businesses die, even poorly politically connected big businesses die, but then the well-connected ones, the big banks, 
big, well-protected big corporations, Amazon and other online retailers are just cleaning up with the help of the government. There's no free market here, right? It's trillions of dollars from the Fed and uh, the Treasury Department, et cetera. So okay, I wonder, you know, what's really going on here? Why has the Small Business Fund run out this week and been allowed, you know, the Small Business Loan Program been allowed to run out this week so small businesses can't get more money? Joseph, uh, um, we need to take that uh, David, is it time for another break? It is, it is. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, this is Joseph Agostino. Welcome back to Do Facts Matter. I am the son of Robert, who's the normal, uh, the usual host here on uh, America's Web Radio. And I was talking about uh, some of the odd inconsistencies in the reasoning for the lockdowns and then the implementation of the lockdowns, where things that are more dangerous uh, uh, and more likely to spread the virus are allowed sometimes or have been allowed sometimes, and then other things have not been allowed. Um, Notice some other inconsistencies as well. So Fauci, of course, the government expert who's been leading the charge for um, house arrest orders and other authoritarian controls, very uh, adamant, uh, no, you know, no gatherings, uh, stay home, and this, that, and other thing, avoid unnecessary contact, six feet away, social distancing. Well, in the last... Uh, you know, a few days ago, he was asked uh, on an interview, what about um, these so-called hookup apps like Tinder, Grindr, where people uh, get in contact with strangers to have intimate encounters? Is this a good idea? And Fauci said, well, you know, it's up to you. It's your, your risk tolerance. You know, if you want to risk that, um, you know, maybe. Right? Now, what kind of answer is that? And why is he, why is he saying that promiscuity is okay? if you're willing to take the risk, which could obviously very easily spread the virus from one person to another, when he is so adamant on um, people not doing other things, like going to the, uh, the house of members of your own family who don't live with you, or going to meet with friends at their own home.
homes are going and playing team sports outdoors um, or going to church services, even if they promise to keep everyone six feet away from each other. Here he is saying, well, it's up to you. It's your, your risk tolerance. You know, make your own decision uh, about uh, anonymous or near-anonymous uh, promiscuity um, during the pandemic, but then these other things are off limits. So it really, really prompts me to wonder what the real agenda here is, what's really going on, uh, what uh, are they uh, really serious about and what are they not serious about. When you see the inconsistencies in the shutdowns, when you see the inconsistencies in what they're saying about what to avoid and, and what to engage in, what's okay, what's not okay, what's up to you and what's not up to you, you know, what's up to you and what, what's up to the government, right? Uh, I think that's very, very suspicious. So uh, now I want to talk about some um, sources uh, that can be useful, right? So I mentioned on the show before Mike Cernovich, uh, who is um, got a great Twitter feed. You don't have to be on Twitter to read it. You can just read it. It's publicly available. He's a kind of a strange fellow. He's got some strange new age ideas and other ideas that I personally don't care for, but he does have great sources uh, within uh, the government, within the Trump administration. He, uh, not really pro, very pro-Trump anymore. He's very uh, disillusioned with Trump. He's certainly not the only one. Uh, but he has great sources, and he also has a, a broad way of looking at things uh, that can be very interesting. Another one just for this uh, pandemic in particular is Alex Berenson. So Berenson used to cover the pharmaceutical industry for the New York Times. He wrote a book called Tell Your Children, published by Simon Schuster, about the dangers of marijuana. Many people have bought the propaganda that marijuana is not a very dangerous drug. It is a very dangerous drug. The, the fact is the scientific evidence, as well as anecdotal evidence, has been piling up the last few years in particular. The whole idea that marijuana is uh, not so dangerous is based on very old science and very uh, badly done science, according to Berenson. The fact is marijuana has a very negative effect, uh, regular use. You know, if someone smokes maybe once a month, maybe it's not a big deal, right? But many people are doing this regularly, uh, uh, particularly young people, and their brains are still forming, their bodies are still forming. And marijuana can lead to all kinds of mental illnesses, as well as what we're very familiar with, which is demotivation. People just lose some motivation to do anything, accomplish anything in life, even to work. But marijuana could actually cause violent psychosis, right? The sort of things that they say, oh, no, marijuana makes you mellow. That's all it does. You know, well, maybe most people, it might make them too mellow, right? Uh, lose their motivation, lose their edge, lose the ability to think uh, very sharply and clearly. But also with some people, they can react to it, uh, at least after some time of overloading their system with it, uh, psychotically. And they literally become psychotic. Um, and uh, just like they can with uh, uh, so-called harder drugs, right? So Berenson uh, wrote a great book about that, and after initially being very concerned about the coronavirus, he switched to being much more concerned about the uh, lockdowns, which he thinks have uh, gone on too long or overkill, and he's very, very concerned uh, about the economy uh, and the deaths that, uh, and other suffering that, of course, a great new Great Depression could cause. I think the idea that somehow we should be able to turn the economy back on and not have any serious long-term effects, I think, is very naive. Maybe. I hope that's true. But it seems very unlikely. We've got this huge unemployment right now. We've got all these small businesses going under. I've personally seen that around the Savannah area. 
businesses are taking down their signs, small businesses, local businesses, taking down their signs, clearing out of the building, right? These are not temporary uh, shutdowns. Um, and uh, I personally know people who lost their jobs, their wives lost their jobs, they have young children, so on. One of them has to stay home because the children are out of school. You know, the other one's trying to get a job, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, the fact is in severe depressions or recessions, uh, uh, suicide rates go way up, drug abuse rates, domestic violence rates, all kinds of health effects. And the fact is also we're having these other things where local practices and rural hospitals that were already kind of marginal when it came to profits are simply going out of business around the country. And people won't have access to the health care, and as a result, we'll, we'll suffer more and we'll die early. And we have to weigh the lives we might save from lockdowns against these lives and, and these issues. Now, maybe the government will bail all these hospitals out and they're going to reopen, and all these small businesses out and they're going to reopen. I think that's very unlikely. Some of them are just winking out and they're just going to be gone, and the, Britain, the government's not going to be able to bring them back. It's simply too late. Uh, they're also talking about extending lockdowns or maybe bringing lockdowns back in the fall which means we'll have another round of economic disaster uh, awaiting us then. So uh, some people say we're not going to have normalcy until a vaccine is developed. Well, that's at least 12 months away, probably longer. The typical vaccine, uh, that went a, a good fast rate to get a safe and effective vaccine to market is five years. But let me point out, SARS, they've been trying, no vaccine. MERS, no, max, no vaccine. You know, Ebola, right? The U.S. government promised in 1984 okay, that there would be an HIV vaccine within two years, right? Okay, Robert. 1984. We're still waiting. Time David, to it's time now. to wrap it up? It's time to wrap it up. All right. So I encourage people to take a look at Alex Berenson's uh, Twitter, for example, and, and other of these alternative sources to give, give you another perspective, and hopefully we'll be able to recover from this uh, relatively early, although we're going to be suffering from this for a long time. Thanks for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.